Greetings, comrades, and welcome to our next episode of Chatter in the Skull. And today, I hope you guys enjoyed the play I did a little bit with some of the format. Like I said, I really wanted to talk about the Turkish election, but I removed that from what I would usually put into one big long video and released it the day before so I can focus on today what I've been wanting to focus on, what I talked about that I would focus on in the last episode, which is just outlining my own political beliefs a little bit more deeply. But before we delve a little more into that, I do just want to touch on a little bit of what I talked about in the last episode and clarify a couple things. We talked a little bit about 21st century revolution. And the one thing I, I feel like I tried to make clear, but maybe I didn't make 100% clear, is more like I feel like at least the revolution is happening whether we want it to or not. At least in the sense that the system that we have now can't continue as it is much longer, in my opinion. And the reason for that being is because I believe that the end of infinite growth is upon us in the next 10 to 20 years. And I don't think that at least capitalism as we understand it can sustain itself without infinite growth. And once we reach that point, there needs to be some sort of revolution, whether we want to or not, because our current system will no longer be adequate to deal with the problems that are before us. Shout out specifically to commenter Prince Elector who mentioned that he doesn't want a revolution or very quick change in society. He favors, and I think most people feel this way, they favor a more incremental movement towards change. And to be honest, I used to feel that way too, but it's weird. It's as most people get older, they get, I guess, less radical. But I feel like almost I'm getting more radical as I get older and more like we need to change what we have now. And the reason for that being is because 10 years ago, I saw the proverbial icebergs in the distance. And I was talking about if we just make a few changes, then we can miss these icebergs and we can continue sailing on as we did before. No problems. Unfortunately, though, in, in those 10 years, our governments, our leaders, whatever you want to say, they really haven't taken consideration of these icebergs. And it's not just like one iceberg, right? It's like a chain of icebergs almost. And there's, we talked a little bit about it. There's a couple different things. One is obviously environmental icebergs. Two is demographic icebergs. And then connected to that is the three is economic icebergs. And there's this chain of interwoven issues in this archipelago. Maybe I'm getting a little bit too deep into this metaphor, but what I'm saying is, yeah, there are serious issues ahead. And unfortunately, in the 10 years, which I have been watching us approach these issues, we have not done enough, at least in my opinion, to divert the ship and avoid them. And as we get closer to them, you need to do larger course corrections in the ship to avoid them. So as we're getting closer and closer to these problems, I am feeling like we need more and more radical changes to avoid crashing into them. And eventually it's just going to get to the point. Maybe that's when I'll get really like cynical and doomer pilled where I just give up. It's like we've missed our opportunity to actually avoid these icebergs. Um, so we're just going to try and navigate our way through the archipelago as best we can and hope we can come out the other side as unscathed as humanly possible. So anyway, what I'm saying is that I, I appreciate that perspective because I used to really have that perspective, 
But as I mentioned, it's weird as I've gotten older, I've gone maybe the opposite way that some people do where I've realized that the prescriptions that at least I think we need to solve the problems that I see are becoming more radical and more extreme because the problems that we're going to be facing are getting closer and closer to us. And one of the things he mentioned, and I do respect this opinion as well, is that any type of revolution or radical change or movement has a very high susceptibility to being hijacked by some charismatic leader or demagogue or something like that who can then take this revolutionary spirit and change among the people and then force it into very nefarious ends. And I totally get that. And I feel that unfortunately... Something like that is probably going to happen anyway, unless we make some drastic changes that as we get closer and closer to these icebergs and it becomes very apparent that we're going to hit them and there's not much that we can do. I suspect that at some point there will be an attempt to have a strong man come in, take over and navigate the ship, so to speak, without any other input from any other parts of the vessel. Unfortunately, I see a point that even if we try our best to avoid radical change, It'll probably get forced down our throat, which will, of course, lead to a lot of the problems that many people are worried about, which is some sort of oligarch or dictator or autocratic figure taking control of the movement. And I have here in the, in the background a picture of a, I think this is an 1848 picture of the French Revolution. And talk about revolutions, in my opinion, that kind of got distorted by a strong man and Divorced from their original ideals, the French Revolution is a good one, in my opinion. I don't want to go too deep into the French Revolution, as again, I'm trying to keep these episodes shorter. But just one tiny little tidbit about the French Revolution. And obviously, I'm talking about, it, specifically in this case, Napoleon, who comes over and basically becomes the figurehead of the French Revolution. And people argue during his march across Europe, he spread revolutionary ideas, which led to the Revolution of the 19th century, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that the French Revolution did was actually abolish slavery as part of the revolutionary movement. Obviously, slavery not really keeping in congruence with the whole ideas of liberté, égalité, fraternité. And Napoleon comes in and he fucking brings it back. What piece of shit do you have to be to reinstitute slavery after your country has abolished it. Anyway, that is one of the reasons, direct reasons for the massive uprisings in Haiti, because the people in Haiti at one point were freed from slavery, and then the French tried to put them back into slavery. Obviously, that didn't go so well. Anyway, <laughs> before I get too far into any more tangents, let's move on. And I wanted to think of... One of the most succinct ways that I can really break down my specific brand of what I believe and my brand of socialism, quote unquote, and it evolves from my own political experiences in life and also living here, I guess, in a prairie area, an area that generally has more of a conservative outlook. It's helped me really influence my own political development. Because I see here a version of socialism and leftism that I feel like I don't see in other places. And I feel like this particular version of socialism really resonates with me personally. 
And what I like to call it succinctly is prairie socialism. So what is prairie socialism? Its founding roots lie with the Canadian Commonwealth Federation, which is the precursor to the new Democratic Party here in Canada. But if I were to, as succinctly as I can, distill this version of socialism down, it would be work hard and help your neighbor. And one of the things I like about this air of prairie socialism is it has a very distinct, and I guess that we could definitely argue, romanticized feeling of people coming together, doing honest work for a common goal, doing work which at the end of the day benefits everybody. Now, the CCF has very deep foundations in left-wing political thought here in Canada. Obviously, it becomes the new Democratic Party. Um, that's what it is known as today. However, the founding member of the new Democratic Party, the one who transitioned the CCF over and the change to the new Democratic Party of Canada, um, was Tommy Douglas. Tommy Douglas, if you don't know, one of the most well-known Canadian political figures considered to be the father of our Canadian public health care system. And I remember, here you go, yeah, in 2004, CBC released a documentary, I guess, a documentary series about the greatest Canadian. And based on a survey, a national-wide survey, Tommy Douglas was named the greatest Canadian. And it's very interesting that he founds, for example, Tommy Douglas is from and, and was before he was the leader of the New Democratic Party. He was the premier of Saskatchewan. And the CCF itself was founded in Calgary, Alberta. Areas nowadays which are not exactly known for their left-wing political views. But within these areas where this type of socialism grew out of, I think that there is a lot of inspiration to be had here. And a beating heart, if you will, that a lot of people are just leaving by the wayside. But speaking of the NDP, another figure who was critical in my own political upbringing is none other than NDP, former NDP leader Jack Layton, who brought the NDP to so far unforeseen heights in its political career. And one of the things that I have always admired about Jack and continue to admire to this day, and I really hope that we can all gain some sort of inspiration from him, is he amplified this idea of, like I said, like the happy warrior that he would always fight vehemently for his principles. He was always standing up on behalf of the marginalized. But one of the things he never looked like he was doing was having a bad time. He always looked like he was enjoying himself. When you talked to him, he had that certain amount of charisma that would pull you in. You never felt like he disliked what he was doing. And even when he disagreed with you, he would still treat you like a human being and it still looked like he enjoyed engaging with people and engaging on subjects that were not always in his own political agreement and within his own political ideology. When Jack died in 2011, and it's funny, I feel like one of the things that in that time the left definitely has lost is that happy warrior vibe, at least the happy part of that warrior vibe still definitely have the warrior part. There's no question that most left-leaning people are willing to go to bat, and vehemently so, for their ideas, for their perspectives, for what they believe in. 
but it didn't seem like we were having the best of time doing it. And I think that really allowed conservatives to capitalize on that whole kind of SJW aesthetic or whatever, and just people who looked like they were angry all the time. You know, we lost half of the equation, half of that very important equation, especially when it comes to persuading people to your own political ideas. Anyway, before I move on to the next person in my list of subjects for political influences, I just want to say that at the end of the day, one of the things that I do like to say when it comes to just distilling my own personal philosophy on an individual level and how I think that people should individually interact on a day-to-day -day basis is, again, work hard, help your neighbor. And maybe you can substitute that with help the people close to you whether that's your family or your friends or the people that support you. That, to me at least, is how I try my best to live my own life. And when it comes to describing my version of socialism that I find very exhilarating and personally fulfilling, this kind of prairie socialism I outline, when it comes to succinctly describing it, those two concepts, work hard, help your neighbor, are about as easy as I can distill it down to. So moving on to the next subject, we have our boy, Utah Phillips. And if you have been around in left-wing circles for any period of time, you've probably heard of Utah Phillips. You've probably heard some of his songs. At the very least, he self-identifies, at least in his lifetime, he self-identified as an anarchist, but was always known as being a very pro-worker, pro-left-wing agitator for socialism and of course or more socialistic worldviews and he would do it through the spirit of song so i consider utah phillips to be almost another figure within i guess the analog of prairie socialists of course agitating in utah another area known i don't exactly think that that utah is so much a prairie area it's more desert still pretty flat by and large although of course not completely flat but still definitely more known for its right-leaning politics. You have, again, these very interesting left-wing figures emerging from these areas. And he also definitely helps distill this idea of work hard and help your neighbor. And we're going to see that through one of his songs. But while we're listening to this, what I want you guys to really think about and really analyze and look at is a lot of the ways he communicates with the crowd. Just what a master of communication this guy is in terms of getting his point across in very succinct but also entertaining ways. Just a real master of his craft in that regard, and that is another thing that I think, unfortunately, leftists have lost. And one of the things he talks about, and we're not going to examine this clip, but he talks about in one of his albums, he talks about how when he was bringing socialism to the workers and the Myers and the laborers and whatever, these were people who weren't well-educated. They didn't have college degrees. And in some cases they may, and especially during the time, a lot of the songs that he sings about during the 1910s, he was born a little later. But during that time in particular, you could run into instances where workers would be outright illiterate. So what he says, like back in his time, he would have to frame his ideas and frame what he wanted to say in a much more down-to-earth type of way and a way that you could convey these sometimes complex ideas about 
systems and about societies to someone who may be literally illiterate or in some cases probably has a very, very basic education. And in terms of that, again, there's, he's one of the best people, especially if you're politically left-leaning, to look at if you want to try and find better ways to really distill your message into powerful and connective ways. In any case, let's jump into the segment I want to play for you guys. All right, so I got a little bit I'm going to play for you. This is from a song called The Preacher and the Slave. I'm not going to play the whole thing, just a couple bits. I'm not going to really talk too much throughout. Just pause and give a, a couple points here that I want to draw you guys' attention to. So basically right now he's setting up the origin story of the song. He got together a little band, T-Bone Slim, a tuba, a garbage can lid. They stood in a doorway waiting to leap out at the unemployed throng and regale them the song. They used a shill to build the crowd. You know, a carny shill? Somebody uses tricks to build a crowd? I think his name was Tresca, but he wore a black suit and a black bowler hat and a string tie with an umbrella and a briefcase looked like a banker. He'd walk down where they were hiding in the doorway and suddenly start to yell, Help! 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 I've been robbed! Help! I've been robbed! Everybody'd run across the street. What's the matter? What's the matter? As soon as he got the crowd together, he'd yell, I've been robbed by the capitalist system, fellow workers! <laughs> Talk to him for 10 minutes, and then the boys would leap out and start singing, and this is what they were singing. I really do love that intro a lot, just the way he, like, built it up and describes everything. And just, like, the the characters that he talks about, like, Tebow Slim, like, he's a real, like, left-wing figure. <laughs> the band, you get the, the band's a tuba, garbage can lid, like, I don't know, I just love, love, love the way he sets everything up here. And, of course, the song itself, I think, is more in tune of what I talk about in terms of prairie socialism or how I view socialism. And again, it's a way I think that has been forgotten about here. So we're going to listen to one of the main verses, and then we're going to listen to the opposing verse. So basically what the song is about is about religion's answer to certain issues in society in contrast to the socialist answer to certain issues in society. Here preachers come out every night I try to tell you what's wrong and what's right But when asked about something to eat uh, They'll answer in voices so sweet Hey, you will eat, you will eat. By, and by. by and by In that glorious land in the sky yeah, I work and pray So when the preachers are asked about something to eat, basically they say, you'll get by with whatever little you have, and then it'll all be worth it in the end when you die. That's a very bleak but a succinct way of, of putting it. But now let's fast forward to the end here and see what, I guess, the socialist contrast is. A working folks of all countries unite. Us side by side, we for freedom shall fight. When this world and this wealth we have gained After the grafters will sing this refrain You will eat by and by When you learn how to cook and how to fry Chop some wood, that'll do you good And you'll eat in that sweet by and by That's no lie 
So what's the socialist answer to the question of what are you going to eat? How are you going to eat? And contrary to what I think a lot of people would think it is, it's not when, you know, the government handout is given to you and then you just eat it up. The answer is when you learn how to cook and when you learn how to fry. In essence saying, you learn how to eat when you learn how to do these skills yourself. Before you can eat, you're going to have to learn how to cook, essentially. And I have always definitely found something personally you know, uplifting about this idea. Again, it's one of the ways that I live my own life. I don't want to spend a bunch of time shit-talking my dad, and I'm not going to do that, of course, on, on this show. But one of the things that my father can't do very well is those kind of domestic activities. In fact, he's just terrible, outright terrible at cooking particularly for himself, but cleaning and, and by and large, those kind of activities that you would consider domestic household activities. And as a result, he's very dependent on my mother to take care of him, to cook for him, to clean for him, for that kind of stuff. And I always thought that one of the things in order to be truly independent is you needed to learn how to do those things yourself. And it's something that I personally strive for and taught myself how to do. And for example, I'm very proud, particularly of my cooking abilities and my culinary abilities, but obviously I have no problem taking care of myself and the cooking and cleaning and that kind of regard. So anyway, being able to take care of yourself with these basic skills is a key building block to independence. And I think a key building block, at least for this framing to independence for the working class themselves. So yeah, you'll learn how to eat when you learn how to cook for yourself. And the next part is go and chop some wood. It'll do you some good. Referring to, I guess, the idea of honest days labor for something that would help everybody out in this case, which would be making firewood that people can share to use for warmth or cooking or fuel or whatever else you use firewood for. Obviously a little bit antiquated for our times, but I hope you understand the spirit here, right? Again, it's not like, when you sit around and laze about and do nothing and everybody else does everything for you, which is what conservatives seem to think like the meaning of socialism is, is that everyone just lays around and come dependent on the government or something like that. Absolutely not. We very much advocate, at least I specifically very much so advocate for people to learn how to do these basic abilities to take care of themselves. And before we get into the next part, and before we get into, I guess, the last thinker I'm going to present and end off with how I teased off off the last episode, which is I briefly want to talk about one of the ways that I think socialism has very much so and what a socialist labor economy would look like has been very much misinterpreted and misunderstood throughout the ages. One of the things that I would see fundamentally very different in a socialist society versus a capitalist society is that in a capitalist society, it demands that you specialize very, very particularly in one thing. And obviously, you become very specialized in your one particular aspect of the production chain. And the guy next to you is very particularly specialized in his aspect of the production chain, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And when everything is firing on all cylinders and you get all the inputs working as you need them to and their logistics are functioning as you need them to, and you have everyone consuming on the other end as much as they need them to, when everything's firing on all cylinders, that system is incredibly productive and efficient and works very, very well. 
Unfortunately, and one of the things we alluded to at the start of this episode is I don't think that uh, things are going to be able to fire succinctly on all cylinders for much longer. In the socialist labor economy, or however you want to talk about it, you are not specialized at all in, you're not necessarily specialized in your jobs or your requirements or your tasks or what obviously the state or the commune or the system needs you to do. You do obviously have strengths that you as a person lean into. You have passions. You have things that you might be talented at or already skilled at. So obviously you would have certain jobs that you would prefer to go into and do more often, but you would be doing a much greater variety of different jobs. So ultimately a person in this fashion may not be as productive as a very skilled individual in one thing. Their flexibility will allow them to do multiple different tasks and fill labor shortfalls wherever they might exist. So let's take an example like people talk about is like, how is the sewage cleaner going to be paid in comparison to the doctor, right? In this potential society, the sewage cleaner isn't always going to just be the sewage cleaner, right? There's not going to be just one guy. And that's who he is. He's the sewage cleaner, and that's all he does. The shitty jobs, both literally and figuratively, their labor would be more socialized, if you will. For example, it would not be just one guy's job to clean the sewers. It would be almost like a... It would be considered more like a societal rotating chore wheel, right? That, yeah, one time it's going to be your turn to clean the sewers, but when you're done that shitty job, you know, you're done. And then it moves on to the next person's turn and the next person's turn and the next person's turn and the next person's turn. And it helps to alleviate that kind of awful grind. I think you have, at least in our capitalist society, where you feel like you're stuck in the same position all the time, just grinding, 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 grinding away. You have a multitude of different tasks that you might be doing on a regular basis. The poor guy in our society that has to be the shit cleaner all the time. They don't have to wake up every day thinking, God damn it, I'm, I'm the shit cleaner and that's all I am. In the socialist society, you wake up and it's like, fuck, it's my, it's my month or whatever to be the shit cleaner. I hope it goes quickly type of thing. And then once you're done, you're like, God, who, thank God I don't have to do this for another two or three years type of thing. But before I get into these points, cause they're going to delve too deeply into how I want to end this off. I want to bring out one of my last inspirations when it comes to my political thinking. So the last influence I'm going to touch on today is none other than playwright Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, of course, very, very famous for his, his plays, his poems, his works of literature. However, less known are his actual political works. And he has one in particular, which has really been a huge influence for me and the way I see the world and the way I think about things. And that is a very brief essay that he writes entitled The Soul of Man Under Socialism. But this very brief essay has a lot of very powerful thoughts and ideas distilled into a poignant piece of prose. Ah, there we go, much better. So now we can actually see what we're talking about a little bit here. So I'm just going to very briefly read the top. The top is probably the most well-quoted part of the entire essay. I will 100% encourage you guys to read this in its entirety. Part of me wants to just do 
And part of me have always been thinking was just sometimes you think, what are, what, what's some content I can make that would, I think, be A, beneficial and B, easy. <laughs> One of them I thought is just narrating written pieces of political material. For example, this would be a great one to just narrate and maybe probably not on my main channel. This would be something I do on just another side channel, which is just like narrated pieces of political prose. But then again, with AI voice changers, I'm getting a little bit off track. Anyway, let's, let's focus on this. Long story short, solo man under socialism. Let us start off here. The chief advantage that would result from the establishment of socialism is undoubtedly the fact that socialism would relive for us that sordid necessity of living with others, which in the present condition of things presses so heartily upon almost everybody. In fact, it scarcely escapes anyone at all. And again, one of the things, another thing is a very common misconception among regulating people about socialism is that socialists don't want privacy or they're anti-privacy. This is just something that comes out of the Russian authoritarianism that really taints our understanding of socialism. There's no need for any kind of mass 1984 surveillance system to make socialism work. In fact, in my opinion, all that it does is generate its failures. In my opinion, socialist society would undoubtedly, and especially again, and this is written in 1891, when the concept of like family households and single family households were pretty foreign. So anyway, basically he's arguing that socialism will in fact increase the amount of privacy in society. It's very interesting how he's going to frame this next part here. He says, now and then in the course of a century, a great man of science like Darwin, a great poet like Keats, a supreme artist, will be able to isolate themselves, to keep themselves out of reach, out of the clamorous claims of others, to stand under their own shelter of the wall, as Plato puts it, and so realize the perfection of what was in him, and to his own incomparable gain, and to the incomparable and lasting gain of the whole world. Those, however, are exceptions. The majority of people still spoil their lives by an unhealthy, exaggerated altruism, and are forced to, indeed, to spoil them. They find themselves surrounded by hideous poverty, by hideous ugliness, by hideous starvation. It is inevitable that they should be strongly moved by all this. The emotions of man are stirred more quickly than man's intelligence. And, as I pointed out some time ago in an article on the function of criticism, it is much easier to have sympathy with suffering than it is to have sympathy with thought. Accordingly, with admirable, though misdirected intentions, they very seriously and very sentimentally set themselves to the task of remedying the evils that they see. But their remedies do not cure the disease, they merely prolong it. Indeed, their remedies are part of the disease. They try and solve the problem of poverty, for instance, by keeping the poor alive, or in very advanced schools, by amusing the poor. However, this is not a solution. This is an aggravation of the difficulty. The proper aim is to try and reconstruct society on the basis that poverty will be impossible. Remember, this is a very, very, very important, important point. The proper aim is to try and reconstruct society on the basis that poverty is impossible. And the altruistic virtues have really prevented the carrying out of this aim just as the worst slave owners were those who were kind to their slaves. 
and so prevented the horror of the system by being realized from those who suffered from it and understood by those who contemplated it. So, in the present state of England, the people who do the most harm are the people who do the most good. And, at last, we have the spectacle of men who really have studied the problem and know the life, educated men who live on the East End, coming forward and imploring the community to restrain from its altruistic impulses of charity, benevolence, and the like, and they do so on the ground that such charity degrades and demoralizes. They are perfectly right. Charity creates a multitude of sins. There is also this to be said. It is immoral to use private property in order to alleviate the horrible evils which result from the institution property. It is both immoral and unfair. Of course, under socialism, this will all be altered. There will be no people living in the fetid dens and fetid rags and bringing up unhealthy, hunger-pinched children in the midst of impossibly repulsive surroundings. The security of society will not depend as it does now on the state of the weather. If a frost comes, we shall not have a hundred thousand men out of work, trampling about the streets in a state of disgusted misery, or whining to their neighbors for alms, or crowding the rounds and doors of the loathsome shelters they try and secure a hunch of bread from, and a night's unclean lodging. Each member of the society will share in the general prosperity and happiness of the society, and if the frost comes, no one will practically be anything worse off. Upon the other hand, socialism itself will be of value simply because it will lead to individualism. I just want to stop here and make a couple points. The reason he states that it will lead to more individualism is essentially because, and I agree with this, is because it will stop people from competing with one another. We will no longer be competing with one another for resources, jobs, money, etc. And because of this, we'll actually have the opportunity to create ourselves as individuals, as individuals as we truly are, to be able to pursue our passions, our hobbies, our interests, and to intellectually become the individuals that we're supposed to be, rather than our individuality be forced through the lens of a capitalist system. Because if your individuality is not commodifiable, if it can't succeed in the capitalist society, then, well, where is your individuality really? And just to go back here, because it bears to mention that I think when it comes to what private property is from a socialist perspective, and it, even when it comes to family from a socialist perspective, this will get taken from conservatives and misconstrued and used to scare people away from the ideas and concepts. For example, they'll say, they'll take away your house and move in a bunch of people, random people live in your house with you and crap like that. There's a concept of personal property in socialism, right? The big thing that socialists and communists don't like when it comes to private property is using it as a vessel to basically get a leg up on everybody else, is using your property as a vehicle for wealth and influence and to propel yourself to a higher point in society. Essentially, personal property, personal living spaces are, in our opinion, a human right by and large and should be secured by, of course, whatever kind of means is available. And on the family end, and shout out to YouTuber R.M. Brown, who did a really a great breakdown of this, because Steven Crowder, for example, one of his shows directly quotes from Marx. Basically, it's a quote saying, oh, we want to get rid of the bourgeois family. <laughs> Look in the quote, 
like literally the second paragraph that he didn't do the highlighter effect on it goes on to clarify exactly what marx means which is talking about how the family unit is now only available at least in his time and you could still argue in our time is available only to the bourgeois class family isn't something that is available to the working class to the impoverished to the poor definitely in the same way that it is to the upper classes essentially what he's talking about in eliminating the bourgeois family is creating a society in which family will be accessible to everybody to create the proletariat family in its place not to abolish the concept of family to begin with anyway sorry i keep getting off track and i've, I've really extended my time here for beyond what it should be so i want to wrap up here i don't want to go too much into the rest of this essay i very much so encourage you to check it out but what this really forced me to do and really forced me to consider in a way that I'd never considered before when I first read it is how, again, all the systems in society operate to give us the outcomes that we have. And what he's saying is that when it comes to charity, essentially what it's doing is it's giving a decrepit system life that it doesn't deserve. That the feeding of the poor, the housing of the poor, should not be left to charitable institutions because they are not the best ones to do this. This should be left into the government and society as a whole. It is something far too important to just foist off onto charity. And what he's trying to say here is that, yes, if you feed the poor, they will survive, but they'll survive in the miserable, decrepit system that caused them to go hungry in the first place. And how much of a benefit is that really? And Essentially, what the hope is, is that you would break the system down, not kill a bunch of people and starve a bunch of people, but by eliminating the aspects of charity, which give unneeded life into these decrepit systems, you would force their downfall quicker and replace it with something which eliminates poverty to begin with. And that is another thing that I, I really bring back to, and I like to talk about when I talk to other people on the left is that it's more important to bring people into the notion and idea of socialism than it is to bring in them into believing certain aspects of socialism and certain aspects of left-wing ideas. Now, fortunately, I'm going to have to cram this last part into a little bit smaller segment that I would like, but I want to talk a little bit with what I left off on the last episode, which is trying to figure out the main problem that I think socialists need to figure out which is how to stop people from falling into homelessness and despair if they don't want to be wage slaves anymore, essentially. And I have a proposed solution for this, and this is something that I have thought of for a very long time. So my proposed solution to this is a new idea combined with a lot of old ideas. So when I thought about this, like the only way I can really see as an idea to circumnavigate this, or at least the best way, maybe not the only way, is to create some sort of parallel community or village or township that operates outside of the capitalist system as much as possible. And people can join one of these communities and know what they're getting into and know what is expected of them and know how to contribute and what kind of quality of life they can expect. And at that point, they're no longer giving their energy, their labor, their resources to the capitalist grindset. They're giving it to a community 
which has a much more ideologically focused sense of purpose. And the hope is to create these townships or communities as a nice enough place for people to come and live, so much so that they will no longer be as enthusiastic to sacrifice as much as they usually would to our current system. And as we talked about before, there comes a point where if enough people, at least in my opinion, no longer are giving into our current system, it will cease to function and collapse and we can effectively move in for some sort of change at that point. What is my solution? Effectively, what my solution is, and this is something that I've been working on for a very long time, and obviously I'm not close to actually unveiling the final product, which is kind of like, consider it, it's like the McDonald's of communist communes, <laughs> if you will. Basically, it's a plan or blueprint which would have all the information necessary to actually create one of these communities, how people can grow food, how people can get access to electricity, how people can get access to the internet, how people can get access to water, how people can actually build comfortable living spaces that they actually want to spend time in and be in. And also how can we avoid things that have plagued these kind of setups in the past, things like tragedies of the communes. How can we avoid that? Basically, I have solutions and systems for most of those. One of the reasons a lot of the time I talk about in our feel-good stories is I talk about farming and I talk about electricity and I talk about water. The reasons are is because I'm doing like tandem research for this side project that I've been doing research for years on. And a lot of the things that I'm looking into are things like farming and water and like how to actually set up a living space that people will want to live in. Because when you think of like a communist commune, right, you get this image of everybody and they're like jumper suits and they're like eating gruel in this like gray, like miserable kind of barracks all hunched over and shit. My vision is absolutely nothing like that. It's something that is sleek and modern and for the 21st century. That as the creature comforts you come to expect in a 21st century society, like internet, air conditioning, like plumbing, like electricity. You understand what I mean here. And of course, oh, one of my big inspirations here is tying back into the idea of bread and roses, which is a very prominent idea in socialist thinking. And what this means is the heart, the human body, it doesn't just need food, doesn't just need bread, but it needs a spiritual fulfillment. It needs roses too. It needs a pretty environment. It needs a comfortable place to be. It needs artistic expression. And it's very important to me to make sure that aspect is not lost. So in my years, I have pretty much have almost all the systems I think worked out. The one that I am really having trouble with and trying to figure out best solutions for is actually water and plumbing and like bathroom stuff. That's my biggest roadblock right now. And it's funny because Marx actually was very expressly against this idea of creating like towns and villages that would operate in parallel to the capitalist system. But unfortunately, Marx, this is no longer the era that you used to live in. This is the era that we live in now. 
And unfortunately, I think this is the only way that we can move forward in some sort of socialist or communist revolution at this point is to create a blueprint or plan and actually have it show some success. Because right now there is no international revolutionary spirit that exists among countries or anything like that. It's right now the individual revolutionary spirit. Anyway, unfortunately, I'm going to have to end it right there because I have come to the end of my recording time and it's time to get this show on the road and get this show out there and produced. So with that, I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been the Comrade signing off for now. And again, I, I want your feedback here, if possible, if you guys maybe like some of the divided videos. Part of me think is part of me is thinking of going down the old like Kyle Kowinski type of route where something I am planning to do and have been dragging my feet on just because there's so many other things going on right now, which is getting this show out in an audio only format, getting it out on Spotify and uh, iTunes and all that kind of stuff, because I have all the audio files saved already. It would be very easy to do. I just got to set something up. So part of what I was thinking, like I said, was going down the Kyle Kalinske route where I put the full show out in an audio format. And then the show itself, I break down into maybe four or five smaller videos that kind of all come out on the same day or maybe over the same couple of days. I don't know. I'm just thinking of, of messing around with the format of the show a little bit. And with that, I think that's going to bring me to the end of everything. So I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been Comrade. I'll see you guys next time.